Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. Not long now and Bethan will be back and I must admit I have really missed her. Um, I think these solo episodes have been really serious, no banter, no swearing, just me and the microphone. So uh, not long to go and she'll be back in the fold and we'll be swearing and ranting and raving once again. Um, Anyway, thank you for joining me once again and thank you to everybody who has been in touch over the last couple of weeks because loads of you have uh, messaged us on Instagram, Facebook, not Twitter because no one uses Twitter Um, and it always amazes me how many people listen to the show and take the time to get in touch so thank you, I think I've responded to all of the messages now Uh, but honestly if it wasn't for you guys that are listening and getting in touch with feedback we wouldn't still be here doing this. Thanks also go to our new Patreon supporters, and there's a shit ton of you this week. Um, So welcome to Liam Clark, Penny McElhinney, Emily Newton, Emma Harvey, Catherine Adam, Sophie Sullivan, Hayden Banks, Callum Draper, Laura, Molly McGrath, Leanne Hyatt, Carolina, Nikki Holt, and Danielle Hill. Thank you so much for choosing to support the show in this way. I can't quite believe there's as many of you as there is. And the money you throw our our way really helps to ensure that we're here for a long time, not just a good time. Um, Thank you to each and every one of you. We've got, I think, 54 people in this club now. Uh, If you want to come and join the party, then check us out at patreon.com forward slash seeing red podcast. Or if you can't be bothered to type the address, then you can just Google Patreon seeing red and you'll find us. And we've got loads of um, different levels of support each with their own benefits we've got bonus episodes competitions all sorts of shit going off over there so why don't you just pause the episode now and go and check us out done that great welcome back this episode takes us back to a balmy summer's day in 1996 and it's set against the backdrop of the beautiful kent countryside This is a charming part of England, closer in distance to northern France than it is to London. It's an ideal place to bring up a young family in a county that is known as the Garden of England. So I'm going to take you back in time. It's Tuesday the 9th of July in 1996. It's a beautiful sunny day in Chillenden, a small village near to Canterbury, about 100 miles from London. There's only a couple of weeks left of school now before the summer holidays begin and the day is starting out as any other day would in the Russell household. Mum, Lynn, Dad, Sean and their two young daughters, nine-year-old Josie and six-year-old Megan, are getting ready for the day ahead. The Russells have only recently moved to this part of the world, having previously lived in North Wales and they can't quite believe how different the climate is here. It's warmer and sunnier than it is in North Wales and the family have enjoyed many mornings together having breakfast in the garden before heading off to work and school. And this day is no different. At 8am Sean heads off to work taking the two girls with him. He will drop them off at their school, Goodiston C of E Primary, on his way into the office. The girls are excited, they've got a swimming gala after school and then brownies later that evening. Josie and Megan are like chalk and cheese. Josie is gregarious and outgoing, not afraid to speak her mind, while Megan is quieter, more sensible and reserved. It hasn't escaped Josie, even at the age of nine, that she clearly takes after her mum, while sister Megan is more like Dad Sean. Despite their differences in personality, however, the girls get on well and have many shared interests. 
As Sean pulls out of the driveway, he catches a glimpse of Lynn standing in the front garden of their picturesque cottage, the morning sun illuminating her from behind, as if she were some sort of angel sent from heaven to keep a watchful eye over him and the girls. Since a move to Chillingdon, Lynn has devoted herself to looking after the girls and running the home. With the family's horse, their beloved pet dog Lucy, Sean's burgeoning career and the girls' countless extracurricular activities, it's a full-time job for Lynn to just keep things ticking over smoothly. The day passes and at around 3.40pm, Lynn sets off with Lucy to pick the girls up from school. It's a walk that takes her through fields, bridle paths and remote country lanes. A walk that takes about 30 minutes without the girls. A walk where she is able to enjoy the peace and tranquility of her surroundings. Lynn arrives at the school at 4.10. She collects the girls and the trio begin their journey home. As they walk down Cherry Garden Lane, a shadow is cast in the distance by a local landmark. Chillenden Mill is a prominent windmill dating back to 1868. Its white facade and imposing sails signal the halfway point in their journey, and the mill is therefore a welcome sign that they will soon be home. But fate has other plans in store for them on this occasion. As they continue walking down Cherry Garden Lane, the windmill now behind them, a car passes. Although not unheard of on this quiet country lane, it is something of a rarity. Nevertheless, it serves as a timely reminder for the girls to be extra careful as they play around on the narrow country lane, which has no footpaths. As they continue on their journey, they notice the same car. This time it's parked across the lane. As they approach, the driver gets out. He's waving a hammer around and running towards them. He grabs Lynn and demands she hand over her purse but she's left it at home. Lynn panics, telling the man he can come back with them and she will give him all the money she has, but she begs him not to hurt the girls. The man hesitates at this prospect for a moment. Seizing this opportunity, Lynn tells eldest daughter Josie to run to the nearest house to get help. As Josie sets off, the man grabs her, striking her with his hammer. Josie has been struck so violently that part of her skull has been removed by the force of the blow, leaving her brain exposed. She is conscious but barely able to move. The man drags her, sister Megan and mum Lynn into a dense copse where he ties them up with strips torn from one of the girls' blue swimming towels. He blindfolds the girls and their mum and starts a frenzied attack on each of them, raining down multiple blows as they cower in fear. The attack lasts several minutes and the family dog Lucy bears witness to this barbaric orgy of violence. Now splattered in blood and barking ferociously, the attacker silences her with a blow to the head, killing her instantly. The barking stops and the silence is deafening. And I think being blindfolded in in these circumstances would have made the attack all, all the more harrowing because not quite knowing what's happening, losing all sense of where you are, it must almost start to feel like a bit of a nightmare rather than reality. Um, And if you can't see what's happening, is it really happening or is it just going on inside your head? And sounds would be magnified, smells would be more prominent and I can just imagine the smell of warm blood permeating the fragrant summer air. Less than a mile away and 20 minutes later now, a man is out walking when he sees something that catches his eye. In the distance is a man in a distinctive red top peering over a hedgerow. He's in an agitated state. Police would later find one of the girls' drawstring school bags at this site. It's now five o'clock. 
As the family lie at the side of the road left for dead, family friend Liz Gregson calls round to the Russell's cottage. She's arranged with Lynn to take her and the girls to Brownies, but there's no sign of them at the house. Liz isn't overly concerned, perhaps Lynn has forgotten and has made her own way with the girls. When Sean eventually arrives home at 7pm, the house is empty. Remembering the girls have brownies on Tuesday evenings and knowing Lynn generally goes for the duration, he doesn't think anything of this and he starts to prepare dinner when the phone rings. It's Liz Gregson. She is concerned now. She tells Sean she called round at five as arranged but there was no one at home. When she tells him that Lynn and the girls didn't then show at brownies, he begins to panic. The girls and Lynn haven't been seen since 4.10 now. And don't forget this is 1996, before mobile phones were widely used, so Sean has no way of contacting Lynn. Trying to regain a semblance of calm, Sean tries to work out where they might be. Perhaps Lucy's been hit by a car and they've had to rush her to the vets. Perhaps one of the girls has been in an accident and Lynn is at the hospital, having lost all sense of time. Sean phones around, but nothing. It's 9pm now and Sean knows something is seriously wrong. He calls the police. They advise him they've had no reports of accidents in the area and in a blind panic he doesn't really take in what they say to him. The call ends and he decides to retrace the route Lynn and the girls would have taken on the way home from school. He drives along Cherry Garden Lane but it's dark now and tragically he comes within inches of the bodies of his wife and two daughters but he doesn't see them. Arriving back at the house at just after 10pm, Liz Gregson and husband John greet Sean on his doorstep. They too are frantic with worry and have arrived to support Sean. He calls the police once again, now convinced there has been some kind of serious accident. Unbeknown to him, they had taken his initial call extremely seriously and were now in the process of immobilising a team of officers and police dogs to search the locality. Officers arrive at the family home and start to question Sean at a little after 11pm. They ask for recent photographs of Lynn, Josie and Megan and question him about the state of his marriage. Had the two argued perhaps? Had Lynn taken the girls? Sean complies fully with the officers explaining there was no domestic issue in their marriage and that this is out of character for Lynn to disappear with the girls for such a long time. Sean is told to wait at the house whilst the search team continue to expand their hunt for Lynn and the girls. After approximately an hour, Liz and John are called outside by one of the officers that are present at the house. When the officer comes back in to speak to Sean, he can tell from his body language by the look on his face that something is desperately wrong. The officer begins by telling Sean that this is the worst thing he has ever had to do, that he has some terrible news, that Lynn and the two girls have been found dead just a few hundred metres from the family home. Sean goes into shock, asking where they are, what's happened and why someone would do this to them. As the news starts to sink in, officers advise Sean he will need to accompany them to Deal Police Station for more questioning. After all, as is so often the case in these circumstances, suspicion falls on those closest to the victims. As Sean is being driven to Deal Police Station, Pauline Smith, a family liaison officer with the force, is lying in bed when her phone rings. She is told by her commanding officer that there has been a triple murder in Chillendon and that she is to go to Deal Police Station immediately to provide support to Sean. As Sean is questioned throughout the early hours of the morning, a dramatic development is about to unfold. Miraculously, one of his daughters has survived the ordeal. 
The girl was presumed dead at the scene, but when a doctor arrived to certify the victims as deceased, she was found to be alive. An air ambulance was summoned and she was taken to King's College Hospital in London. She's in ICU on life support. Sean is informed and taken to the hospital where he faces the agonising task of identifying which daughter has survived. As he peers through the window of the ICU at the body of a girl whose head is covered in bandages and whose face is obscured by various tubes and breathing apparatus, Sean can clearly make out freckles across the child's face. He knows it's his eldest daughter Josie. At last, Sean has a reason to go on. Years later, he would reflect on the suicidal thoughts he had in the early hours of that morning as he was driven to Deal Police Station, having just been told that his entire family were dead. News of the tragedy starts to trickle through to friends and neighbours in the village and the whole community goes into shock. This is a small village and everybody knows the Russells. They've only recently moved there and were the talk of the village, as is often the case in these rural enclaves. This kind of thing just doesn't happen in Chillenden. The media pick up on the story and rumours circulate that there is a killer on the loose. Families hold their children tightly and don't let them out of their sight. Meanwhile, detectives from London are called in and the crime scene is scrutinised by the best forensic officers in the country. In the days that followed, an appeal was made for witnesses to come forward, but officers knew the remoteness of the location would make this unlikely. And besides, they already had their star witness, Josie. But she was still seriously ill in hospital, having suffered a severe head trauma. Josie underwent a nine-hour operation in the hours that followed her attack, where further parts of her skull and brain were removed before a four-inch metal plate was inserted. She had suffered brain damage, there was no doubt about that, but the extent to which this would affect her would remain unknown until she regained consciousness, and there was a question mark over whether that would ever happen. The part of her brain that had been damaged was the cerebrum, the section that controls speech and language. It was starting to look less likely that Josie would ever be able to recall the events of that afternoon. As the days passed by in a blur with no improvement in Josie's condition, Sean remembers talking to the doctors thinking they would come in at any point and ask him to turn off her life support machine. He didn't know if Josie would survive and even if she did, he didn't know if she would be in a permanent vegetative state or whether she would be able to speak again, hold down a job in the future or even have a relationship. As Josie was kept under armed guard at King's College London, Sean remained by her side, willing her to get better. She was all he had now. Detectives launched one of the biggest manhunts in living history, and two witnesses came forward, including the man who had been out walking in the locality at the time of the murders. As I said, he had seen an agitated man in a red top leaning over a hedgerow, about a mile from where Lynn, Megan and Josie were attacked. And I have to say at this point, although it was never made clear, I do honestly think this man wasn't wearing a red top. I think he would have just been literally covered in blood from head to toe. And that's why from a distance, the T-shirt would have looked like it was red, which is just so disturbing. Officers also heard from a woman who had been out driving in the vicinity shortly after the murders. Between them, they were able to come up with an artist's impression of a man police believed was responsible for the killings. Now, I will come back to this e-fit in a little while because it does belie a shocking twist to this case. Doctors continued to monitor Josie's condition and they did start to see a change. Slowly but surely, she was getting better. 
They were confident that she would pull through now, but there were still serious concerns relating to the severity of her brain injuries. They knew she would have speech and language problems and they were preparing Sean for the worst case scenario, that she would not be able to live an independent life and would need 24-hour care, but they didn't honestly know what her prognosis was at this time. Forensic experts continued to comb the scene for clues and although they did find a blood-stained towel and some blood-stained clothing near to the site of the murders, as well as a hammer, no DNA other than that of Lynn, Josie and Megan was ever found. No fingerprints were evident and, apart from the e-fit, they had nothing to go on. They'd hit a dead end. After two weeks, Josie regained consciousness. It was evident she could not communicate, but specialists were able to ascertain she had memory of the trauma that she had suffered. Furthermore, she was capable of understanding her surroundings and, although she couldn't talk, she could understand what was being said to her. Consequently, the harrowing task of explaining to her that her mum and sister were now dead was put to Sean. With the careful support of a child psychologist, Sean told Josie that Lynn and Megan had died. She responded by simply turning her head away from Sean. She clearly understood the gravity of what he had just told her, but distressingly she was unable to vocalise her grief. Josie's condition continued to improve and she was eventually released from hospital after six weeks and allowed home. When she returned back to the house she had shared with her mother, sister and father, she methodically went into each and every room. Afterwards, child psychologists explained to Sean that this was her way of proving that her mother and sister were no longer there and that they were dead. Although still unable to talk, Josie continued to make what doctors described as a miraculous recovery. She attended speech therapy classes and it was established that she could understand fully what was being said. She was able to match pictures to words and slowly she began to communicate as best she could. Pauline Smith, the family liaison officer, worked with Josie for many months, gaining her trust by creating scrapbooks of family photos before eventually building a scale model of the murder scene. The scale model was horrifyingly realistic. Pauline created it herself and it featured scale models of Josie, her mum and sister, as well as their attacker. Pauline had dressed them in similar clothes and Josie was able to move the models around in sequence and explain in her own way what had happened that afternoon. And in fact Josie told her and another family liaison officer details of the attack that to this day she has never shared with anybody else including her father. Police worried about the effect all this might have on her but it was apparent that she was elated at being able to get some of this trauma off her chest. This was the first chance she had had to get her feelings across. Based on the witness statements and sequence of events Josie had shared, detectives were able to eliminate many persons of interest. After the harrowing events of that July afternoon, Sean decided that he and Josie would move back to North Wales. It was their home after all, they'd only lived in Kent for a few short months and it was so tarnished for them now. In North Wales, Josie was able to regain some semblance of normality. She returned to the school she had left just months before and she showed a huge amount of resilience through every step in her recovery. On the one-year anniversary of the murders, police launched a fresh appeal for information and this proved to be a turning point in the investigation. The name of Michael Stone was put forward by a psychologist. He was aware his patient had been talking about the murders and this was the break that until now had so eluded the police. 
Michael Stone was an unemployed 37-year-old who lived 40 miles from the scene of the murders. Addicted to heroin, he led a chaotic life and had previous convictions dating back to 1972. His childhood had been blighted by domestic violence and he was placed in care before his 13th birthday where he was physically and sexually abused. Upon leaving care, he had moved to Chillingdon and so was familiar with the area. In 1981, he was jailed for two years for a hammer attack. Not long after he was released for this, he was jailed for actual bodily harm and in 1987, he was sentenced to 10 years for armed robbery. Upon his release in 1993, Stone became addicted to heroin, which required him to inject himself with the drug up to five times a day. He was diagnosed with a personality disorder and was a deeply troubled individual. And this is where I do have a tiny, tiny amount of sympathy for this guy. I think there are so many people out there with severe mental health issues who don't have access to the right treatment, who for whatever reason they're not receiving the right treatment. And so really they have no choice but to medicate themselves in the only way they know how through drink and drugs. And I'm not justifying what he did at all. I'm I'm just sort of making a side point really about mental health and how some people do need to self-medicate. Police looked into Stone's background and his movements on the day of the murders and he was arrested. He had a known history of violence, was a habitual drug user and was known to have violent fantasies. What's more, he knew the area of Chillingdon and had a motive, I suppose, robbery to fund his drug addiction. On the 6th of October in 1998, after months of agonising detective work, Michael Stone went on trial for the murder of Lynn and Megan Russell and the attempted murder of Josie Russell. William Clegg QC defended Stone during his trial and in his book Under the Wig he reflects on the case. In representing Stone he said he always felt the odds were stacked against him. This was a high profile case. A young girl had been murdered in cold blood along with her mother. The nation had followed Josie's recovery and had taken this girl into their hearts. They so wanted justice for her and Clegg felt the jury would be compelled to convict in order to achieve closure for Josie and Sean. Clegg said it was clear from reading prosecution files that there was no evidence against Stone. There was no definitive proof Stone was in Chillington at the time of the murders and there was also no forensic evidence linking him to the killings. What's more, there was no credible motive according to him. On the face of it, Clegg found it difficult to see how the CPS could prosecute him. When he met with Stone, he encountered an intelligent, rational, yet manipulative individual who would play people off against one another. Nevertheless, Clegg found him to be cooperative. While Stone was held on remand awaiting his trial, two fellow prisoners said he had confessed to them. When this was brought to the attention of the CPS, suddenly they had a real case. But we all know that convicts do not make the most reliable of witnesses. Clegg advised Stone against taking the stand, advice he heeded. There was no point as far as Clegg was concerned. Stone had always denied being responsible for the murders. All he would be able to do if he took the stand would be to deny any allegations that were put to him by the prosecution. At the end of the trial, Lord Justice Ian Kennedy instructed the jury that if they had any doubts over the prison confessions, they were to return a not guilty verdict. He said the other evidence which had been presented to them was not strong enough on its own to convict Stone. 
The jury did believe the evidence of Stone's fellow inmates, however, and he was found guilty of all three counts on a 10-2 majority verdict and sentenced to three life sentences and told he would serve a minimum of 25 years. But the story doesn't end there. When Clegg saw him later, he maintained his protestations of innocence. Within 48 hours, one of the prisoners who alleged Stone had confessed to him did an interview with a tabloid newspaper confessing that he'd made it all up. And so, an appeal was mounted. At this point, the CPS seriously considered overturning the verdict and releasing Stone. However, they later decided there would be a retrial and he would remain in prison. The retrial took place at Nottingham Crown Court in 2001 and hinged on the evidence of Damien Daly the other inmate who had allegedly heard Stone confess. Daly said he overheard Stone's confession through the pipework which connected his cell to Stone's. During the retrial, the jury was taken to the cell in question and a forensic officer read a passage from Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire from the neighbouring cell. They could hear some words clearly, but not many. The jury had to decide which man to believe. Was Stone telling the truth or was Daly? As far as they were concerned, it was Daly who was telling the truth. They convicted Stone once again on a 10-2 majority. William Clegg has always maintained that the evidence against Stone was not convincing. And in another disturbing twist, Levi Belfield has been linked to the Russell murders. There have been numerous reports of Belfield confessing to the crime from behind bars, where he's currently serving a whole life tariff for the murders of Amélie Delagrange, Marsha MacDonald and Millie Dowler. The crime fits his modus operandi and, worryingly, Belfield looks more like the man in the e-fit than Stone does. I will see if I can post uh, the e-fit on our social media pages along with the faces of both men so that you can make your mind up for yourselves. Um, But I think it's a really interesting theory and even Sean, Josie's father, has admitted there is an element of doubt in his mind regarding Stone's culpability. Sean has said that he essentially feels damned either way. If Stone was responsible, he may be released one day and he and Josie will be forever looking over their shoulders. If it wasn't Stone, then an innocent man is in jail, whilst a true culprit is perhaps free to roam the streets, preying on other innocent victims. If this is the case, he has no closure. And I do think it's a really interesting concept. There are so many unsolved murders or disappearances. Perhaps the man who killed Lynn and Meghan Russell in 1996 is the same man who abducted and most likely murdered Claudia Lawrence in 2009. Perhaps that's true, although one thing I know for sure is that serial killers have a compulsion to kill. They cannot help themselves and more often than not they do get caught. Whether they confess to all of their crimes is another matter. And I think if Stone isn't guilty of the murders of Lynn and Meghan Russell, then the real killer has most likely been prosecuted for other murders and is behind bars. Perhaps it was Levi Belfield. There has been an update this week. I know that Stone had launched another appeal um, trying to say that it is Levi Belfield who was responsible for the murders, but it has been overturned. So Stone remains in prison. So what became of Josie, the innocent nine-year-old girl who loved horses and the outdoors, the girl whose mother and sister were murdered in front of her, along with the family dog Lucy, the girl who fought to recover from serious head injuries which left her brain damaged? Well, she didn't just survive, she thrived. 
After moving back to North Wales with Sean, she returned to her old school and slowly learnt to talk and read and write again. She went on to pass eight GCSEs before going on to achieve a BA in graphic design and a distinction in her national diploma in art and design. She moved out of the home she shared with Sean at the relatively young age of 20 and was able to live independently. Furthermore, she has used her profile to publicise other people's suffering, travelling to Nigeria to open the Josie Russell Medical Facility for children affected by malaria. Josie is 32 now and engaged to a man called Iwan. Ewan, it's Welsh. Uh, she's a successful textile artist and sells her work through her own website. Um, you can check it out at josierussell.com. Um, there's some really good stuff on there. I had a really good look at it. She sells Christmas cards that are prints of different uh, art projects that she's done. Uh, she commissions pieces. She, she's quite successful and it is really good stuff. She's really, really talented. Um, she also bought the family's former home in North Wales where they had had so many happy memories before moving to Kent. She's an animal lover and an ambassador for the Born Free Foundation and she retains a close relationship with her dad Sean. She has never been able to go back to Kent and can't bring herself to talk about Michael Stone but she has said she would like to know why he did what he did. Josie doesn't want to be known as the girl who was the victim of a heinous crime. She doesn't want people feeling sorry for her. She wants to get on with her life and focus on making a positive difference in the world. And I think that's a great place to draw the episode to a close. Do get in touch in all the usual ways. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Um, Thanks to Danielle Hill for suggesting this case. Um, I remember it really well from the time actually, but um, I'd pretty much forgotten about it and I think it is a fascinating case. Um, It's an inspirational story in terms of Josie's recovery, um, but there's also that disturbing possibility that the murders were committed by Levi Belfield. And it's a case I know, um, I, I just knew we had to cover it. So once again, thanks, Danielle. I hope I've done it justice. And thank you for listening. Don't forget to check us out on Patreon. Uh, we'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs>